Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. An American died every 12.3 minutes by suicide in 2016, and there are an estimated 1.1 million suicide attempts annually in the United States, according to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Even more shocking is that 90% of individuals who died by suicide had a psychiatric diagnosis at the time of death. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States and second leading cause for death among adolescents. It's a problem that causes a tremendous amount of pain and grief for loved ones in the family system. The emotional, the financial stressors caused by this issue can be challenging to discuss, but they continue to be one of the most important issues that systemic therapists face. Not only supporting families who have had a loved one die by suicide, but also suicide attempt survivors and what that means for themselves and their family. And that's what we're talking about today on the AMFT podcast. Two, two incredibly knowledgeable clinicians and researchers, scientists, practitioners who work with suicide attempt survivors and their families. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Dr. Laura Fry is an associate professor and is the director of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at the University of Louisville's Kent School of Social Work. Obviously, that is the program in which I teach in as well. Dr. Fry's interest is at the intersection of family processes and suicide prevention. Her research utilizes both quantitative and qualitative methods to explore the role of stigma in family interactions following a loved one's disclosure of suicide ideation or behavior. Her work has demonstrated links suggesting disclosure, which we'll talk a lot about today, and subsequent family reactions predict depression symptoms, and the interpersonal needs that predict the desire to die. Moreover, she found that individuals with a lifetime history of suicidal behavior perceived the highest rates of stigma from close family members, which was the best predictor of subsequent depressive symptoms compared to stigma from other sources. She's currently the principal investigator for a grant funded by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention that examines the effect of parental expressed emotion on adolescent disclosure of suicide ideation and how they impact treatment adherence moving forward. In addition, Dr. Fry is an AMFT approved supervisor and AMFT clinical fellow. She is joined by her colleague, also AMFT clinical fellow, assistant professor at BYU, Dr. Quentin Hunt. He received his PhD from the University of Minnesota and his master's in MFT from UNLV. He is a member of the American Association of Suicidology in addition to the AMFT, and his research interests are understanding and preventing suicide in clients at at risk. Currently, he's looking at sexual and gender minority youth and their families, 
and relational-based interventions. Quentin, also, uh, both both of our guests today, uh, again, well-spoken, passionate about this subject and have really personal experiences with it as well as Quentin will tell us about today. So hopefully listening to a podcast like this is always news you can use, take back into your clinical work as many of our listeners are frontline systemic therapists and clinicians. So we strive to bring you a mix of emerging topics and things that will aid you in the practice of systemic couple and family therapy. And certainly today I learned a lot and I hope you will too. And we'll be back after the interview. Your practice finances are about to get a whole lot easier. As a mental health care professional running your own business, you're probably more familiar with your session notes than with financial records. Luckily, HERD is a bookkeeping and tax platform designed to help you track the financial health of your practice and alleviate the stress around your business finances. Built and designed for therapists, HERD offers affordable bookkeeping services, personalized financial reporting, and tax assistance to ensure clinicians make the most of their business and their time. Schedule your first consultation at www.joinherd.com. That's www.joinherd.com. Pleased to be joined on the AMFT podcast by Quentin Hunt and Laura Fry. And today we are talking all about you know a topic that many people think is very difficult, but not necessarily systemic or not necessarily something family therapists talk about. That is suicide, which both the prevention and dealing the the after effects. And again, two experts here that have uh, both systemic thinkers, both MFTs, and have dedicated a large portion of their professional life, the, their scholarship and uh, their clinical practice to dealing with it. So very important topic for us all to know about and i guess if you guys have listened to the show before we always like to start and hear a little bit about uh, the person the expert uh, what drove them in this case not just to mft but how'd you get interested in working about uh, working with suicide and uh, the family system sure i can go ahead and start um so i first uh started working with suicide whenever I was actually an undergraduate at Purdue University. Um, I started working at a crisis center just to see if I, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to go into the counseling field and I wanted to see if I, in fact, enjoyed talking to people and um, trying to be helpful. And uh, so I was trained to talk with individuals that were suicidal. We were a crisis phone line there. And um, it really great gave me a great training and a great foundation. So then whenever I came into my graduate program, I realized that other people didn't have the comfort level that I had. And I noticed that, you know, a lot of, especially students in training to be therapists, their own nervousness sometimes can prevent them from asking questions or can make their questions come off more awkward uh, than they're intending. And so I, I noticed that because I had that experience and that training, um, it, it just gave me a comfort level. And so I started um, diving in a little bit more into the research and realizing that it was very hard to find information on how to help families and um, kind of how the family dynamics impact whether or not someone shares that they're feeling suicidal or whether or not they do feel suicidal. And so um, I wanted to dive into that more. Um, and so that's what I've been doing ever since. Yeah, and you had a nice family studies background that went with that. So it flowed nicely together, but it was really all from that, that early experience, and you blended the two. What about you, Quentin? Um, in, in some ways, similar, and in, in many ways, also very different. I 
I always knew that I wanted to do something to help, kind of like counseling. My, my brother died by suicide when I was a kid. That had a huge impact on my life and my family's life. And, and I knew I wanted to do something to help people like my family needed help. But I, I didn't, the only thing I knew was that clinical psychology was a thing. And I didn't particularly want to work with individuals. And I didn't have a good experience with the, with the therapist that I had known. And I struggled in school. I was depressed in, in college and pretty suicidal myself at times throughout my younger years. And then I kind of stumbled across what marriage and family therapy was. I mean, I can, I can still remember the the classroom I was sitting in when a colleague said that she was going to go to grad school to be a marriage and family therapist. And I tell people, it's like, it's like the skies parted and the sun shone down on me for the first time in a long time. And that I knew it's I wanted to help families deal with suicide and some of their more extreme struggles that they did not do well. Frankly, I had I really had no intention to pursue a PhD and do research because I wanted to do clinical work. But as I got into grad school and started to become a therapist and learn about, similar to what Laura was saying, best practices of dealing with suicide and also learning about how much anxiety around suicide therapists have and also learning how little we know specifically about family-based intervention with suicide-related thoughts and behaviors. That's what made me want to pursue this path. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that very personal story. And I find that most of us are drawn to this field because we have a personal connection. It's like sometimes before people even have the systemic language, they just think that way and motivated by our early professional experiences like Laura or our personal experiences. It's great to, to hear you're kind of honoring your brother and your family in this work. Um, so when we talk about this work, though, the field has primarily examined suicide as an individual phenomenon, yet Family scientists and MFTs view suicide as a family experience in this systemic language that we all love. So from a clinical perspective, I was hoping you guys can talk about the systemic aspects of suicide that traditional research tends to overlook and which really is the void in the field both of you are attempting to rectify. Let's talk about the systemic components of a, a very linear kind of individualized phenomenon. Yeah, I think, you know, much of the suicidology field, um, study of suicide prevention and intervention, a lot of it is, is quite pathology driven in the idea that what's happening within that individual that makes them more at risk for suicide. So what are the individual risk factors? And oftentimes it's pointing to either mental illness or a lack of coping skills or deficits in problem solving skills. And, and so how can we help individuals in a skill-based way and teach them skills to help um, prevent them feeling suicidal in the future? And that is certainly important and helpful, but it also misses this um, aspect of whenever an individual feels suicidal, there's often um, things happening in, in the context, um, in their interactions with other people um, that factor into whether or not they feel suicidal, this idea of do they feel as if they belong or do they feel as if they're a burden to others, and even you know existing family dynamics of if there's conflict in the family or how much warmth is there, how much connection is there, those things all contribute to whether an individual feels as if what they're experiencing is manageable or that they feel they have the support to manage the pain that they're feeling. And so those are all factors that can lead into that. And so if we're only looking at the individual-based risk factors, it loses a whole nother aspect that can really be helpful in the treatment um, sphere. So that's something that I know that Quentin and I look at in our research and something that we're trying to encourage more of. 
I'll just add on to what, what Laura said. I think she's done a really captured the, the essence of it. Uh, this this particular issue is one of the things that Laura and I, in, in our collegial meetings, you know, around suicide conferences and stuff, where we kind of commiserate together on on how so much of, of the suicide world is focused on individual aspects, like, like you're all talking about. But I think really what we're getting down to is traditional research is kind of assuming that why what makes people suicide, suicidal is either something broken in the brain or something else broken biologically. If that's the case, then it may make sense that individual treatment or medical treatment is, is the only or best treatment. However, there is plenty of research, even, even research that's coming from people, folks that are not so systemic, there's plenty of research that shows the context matters greatly in what makes people suicidal. I mean, 50% of, of suicides are right after a breakup. That's even more relevant for adolescents as well. Yeah, I mean, it's like we're preaching to the choir, an audience like this, thinking of the context, think of these relational dynamics and things going on outside of the system in, their, in people's interpersonal networks that contribute to, to feeling so stuck and desperate like this. What do you think the biggest myths are around this field and around suicide that you guys as systemic thinkers, as people that do research and, and are also clinicians? I mean, everybody on this show is uh, either a scientist practitioner or a practitioner scientist. Uh, so what do you think the biggest myths are about suicide that you're really hoping to dispel? I mean, there's there's so many that we could go on for a while, but I'll just a couple of my the big ones that come to mind for me. One of those is that if somebody someone's either suicidal or they're not, that it's this dichotomous experience, and someone either wants to die or doesn't, and it's not it's not that simple. It's so much more complex and nuanced. And you know, even in my original experiences of training on you know how do we talk with someone who's suicidal and how do we be most helpful, it was really helping individuals tap into that ambivalence that they can feel sometimes. And oftentimes it's you know, that feeling of this is the only way that I have left to make the pain go away. But at the same time, feeling as if if I could make that pain go away, I would want to keep living. I would want to be able to live my life. And and recognizing that people can have those reasons for wanting to live and feeling as if suicide's the only option at the same time. And I think that's a really hard um, complex thing for people to hold in their heads sometimes, especially if they've never felt suicidal or they've never known someone that's felt suicidal. And then the other big myth for me is often, um, you know, people who talk about suicide don't really, aren't really going to do it. Almost this idea, well, if they, if they were suicidal, they would just do it already. They wouldn't talk about it. And I think that's one of the most dangerous myths because we want people to talk about it. And talking about it is one of the sure ways to get people connected to treatment. And so if we're perpetuating this myth, it also makes people think, well, I can't talk about it because I won't be believed. People will think I'm seeking attention. We have all these really negative myths that deter people from talking about it. And so that's, that's a really dangerous one too. The only thing I, will, I would add on top of what Laura said, this isn't one necessarily one of the, the myths that we, we see commonly perpetuated, or at least explicitly perpetuated as a myth. I think that we have found plenty of research that shows, and I would say I also see this within my own clinical practice, there are times when thoughts of suicide might actually be logical. And to just assume that it's always illogical or selfish or 
so on and so forth, doesn't accurately portray the experience of the person that's that's having the thoughts of suicide. Yeah, you guys said a lot there. So let's do these clinical scenarios that are so helpful to people listening to a podcast like this. So say you said this idea of talking about it. Laura, you were saying earlier, sometimes therapists, especially beginning therapists, are even squeamish about talking about it. So this idea of if an individual is having these thoughts to create a safe space to talk about that, but then as we, as we often do as MFT, systemic therapist, expanding the system. So let's talk about how you would work with an individual and then if they are feeling this to help them reach out to the family and how you would incorporate when you have a person at risk for self-harm or taking their own life, how you would move from individual to perhaps mobilizing that family in the treatment. Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. So um, most of my experience, whenever someone is talking about feeling suicidal or I'm working with a suicidal client, it's been mainly they're they're there individually. And so trying to bring in that family can be tricky sometimes. And I'll be honest, sometimes, you know, suicidal individuals, either they haven't had a good experience or they're scared of what it'll be like to tell their family. And so sometimes they don't want to bring that family in. And so a lot of times what I'll do is talk about the benefits of having that family there, but never making the assumption that family is always going to be helpful. You know, a lot of times, the panic that family members feel whenever they hear that their loved one is suicidal, that panic is real and it can lead them to react in ways that might not be the most helpful. And so asking an individual, you know, what do they expect that reaction to be? And is there anything that I can do to help support that family and prepare them to have a good reaction? So there's times where I've called family in advance, you know, gotten that permission and talked with the family member in advance of um, this is something that we want to talk about, but what are your reactions? What questions do you have before we get into the room. And that can even sometimes help whether it's parents or a romantic partner or a sibling, um, an adult sibling or a grandparent, you know, having them ask some of those questions and kind of dispel some of those myths in advance. So we can also help prepare them of this is what that individual is going to need in that moment. This is what, you know, your suicidal loved one might need and need, need to hear from you. And so helping families think about that in advance is something that I found to be really helpful. I think that that some of this comes down to really, how do you expand to a, a system? Um, I find in interviews that I've done with clinicians and, and discussions I have with clinicians that work with suicide, often people will think, oh, kind of like Laura was saying, well, you know, I'm just seeing the person individually. That means I don't have family that I can talk to. Um, yeah, certainly there are issues around confidentiality and consent, and sometimes clients will vehemently not want other family members to be brought in. That is absolutely relevant, and it's important that we respect clients' autonomy. But I will, I, I will say that when I try to expand the system and bring in other family members, it really helps because then we can, as Laura was talking about, then we can deal with some of those negative reactions that family members often will have. I mean, Laura has, has done some really fantastic research on the reactions that family members do when told about suicide. And I think that that's, frankly, that's bread and butter. That's, that's great, great stuff for family therapy. These, these negative reactions that people have, the criticism that people will have, the blaming that goes on. So that's perfect setup for a great family therapy. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that as a perfect setup. 
Laura, as far as your research, and I love research when it can be directly clinically applied. So what have you learned in your work about how people disclose to their families? Yeah, so um, this is certainly an area of research that's still coming out. There's still so much that we have to learn, but certainly, you know, there are different factors that come into whether or not somebody discloses. Um, And so some of that comes down to the motivation. You know, sometimes people... Of course, we want them to disclose in the moment if they are feeling suicidal. And so maybe they're disclosing to seek help and have somebody either sit with them in this really scary moment or having someone help them navigate the healthcare system of how do I figure out who to go to to get some help. But also sometimes people want to share that they have this they've had this experience before. You know, you think about disclosure also comes down to if, you know, if I'm an attempt survivor and that's part of my identity and something that I experienced, I want to be able to share that with the people that that know me best. Um, and I want to be able to share myself with them. So even looking at the, the motivation of why people are disclosing. And then also, you know, thinking about disclosure often happens in like a mini cost benefit analysis of in the moment, maybe I need help, but also what are the deterrents? Maybe a cost of disclosing is I lose control of my treatment if somebody forces me to be hospitalized, for example, and that can be really scary and a big deterrent for disclosure. And so kind of I I need help, but what is help going to look like? And so often weighing those pros and cons. And we'll find that a lot of individuals will disclose to somebody that, you know, disclosure can sometimes happen in pieces where individuals might test the water of, they might say something uh, briefly in a, in a way that they could say maybe they were kidding, but they'll kind of throw something out there to see what somebody's initial reaction going to be to that. And are they going to ask, or are they going to follow up with me? Because it is such a highly stigmatized thing. And it's something that a lot of people don't understand. And so we find that some people will test the waters where they may say something like, well, I won't be around much longer. I won't have to worry about this anyways. You know, no one will miss me. They may throw statements out like that where, seeing, is someone going to ask? Is someone going to see me? Um, And so sometimes, you know, family members can feel put off by that of why don't individuals just come out and tell me? (laughs) And it's just not that simple because there are often such negative reactions. So those are different aspects of the disclosure experience. But then also family reaction matters. Whenever someone discloses, even if you know, whenever I work with family members, even sometimes I'll say, you don't even know, have to know what the right thing to say is. And if you don't know what to say, it's okay simply to ask questions to say, I don't know what that feels like. Help me understand. What do you need in this moment? How can I be the most helpful? Or even, I didn't know you were feeling that way. Tell me more. And, and having that reaction of opening the door to say, I want to learn more of what that's, what this is like, or even, you know, I don't know the right answers either. Let's call someone together. That can, can really be impactful to help people feel like it's safe to keep telling and to keep talking. I'm so glad you said that because it's almost like a parallel process, right? So I think of young therapists or even not even necessarily young therapists that if a client does give you a feeler like that in the session that the therapist immediately goes into this kind of rigid planning mode or assessment mode rather than being empathic or more curious or letting that develop right so it's almost like we have to model this response for our clients so that we can help if if their family members are going to be part of that have the same experience so let's talk about how we do that and then uh, i guess depending on the the client situation if somebody tells you they are suicidal obviously confidentiality is important except in these circumstances where someone is in imminent harm to themselves so sometimes as you were saying it's great when you can get the buy-in 
and you can bring the family in. But sometimes the person is in much distress and they don't want to bring their family in. But especially if they're at harm to themselves and let's say they're a minor, uh, then your hands are kind of tied. So let's talk about creating the space to be curious, to have more of this dialogue. And then what do we do if the client is not willing to bring their family in and you believe they are in imminent danger to themselves? So you bring up a really a really challenging situation here, Eli. Um, and I think that this speaks to the importance of the therapeutic relationship that we've built. Just to be frank, we as healthcare providers, when we're dealing with issues related to suicide, as a whole, we have done a terrible job to promote that we are one, competent, and two, that we are not gonna exploit somebody or take advantage of them or actually treat them well. And so folks that have been experienced in the system, meaning that they've ever talked to a provider before or been hospitalized, frankly, they have some valid reasons why they might be hesitant to talk about their experiences. And so folks getting ready to, to disclose for the first time to their therapist that they're having thoughts of suicide, they may have, they may have Googled it or talked to somebody about their experiences so there's going to be some heightened anxiety almost always. I think that this is so important that we can even address this in, and should be addressing this from the very first session of informed consent and discussing about what's it going to look like if we get to this point. We are legally mandated to do something when somebody is at risk of suicide. At risk meaning they might there's imminent risk that they might attempt suicide. Things that, that are really, really helpful here are if we are just open and collaborative with the client as much as possible. Tell them exactly what's going on. What I recommend is if you're worried about the client going home because you think that they might attempt suicide if they leave your office, I think you should say that. Hey, look, man, I'm worried that if you go home tonight by yourself, you're going to try to kill yourself. Let's talk about how, what we can do to keep you safe. And um, oh, okay, you don't want to talk. You don't want to bring mom or dad into this. You don't want to bring a sibling into this. What's another what's another way that we can move that will help keep you safe? Help encourage them to be active participants here. And really, when it comes down to it, if they're unwilling to make any movement on in bringing somebody in to help keep them safe, that's when we might start discussing other options. But I, I think we, we have a great deal of work that we can do to, to just bringing in the, the reality of where we're at, our own anxieties about it. If you're really scared, I don't think it's inappropriate to tell the client, man, I'm really scared that if you go home, you're going to try to kill yourself. What can we do to help keep you alive for a little bit longer? I couldn't agree more. You have to have a human reaction, not a robotic check this box, ask this question. And for the people that at a point or at their lowest point and just need someone to care to, to share an honest reaction like that, I think is essential. And you're right, Alliance, you can't have any good treatment. As we know, Alliance is a necessary but insufficient form of therapy, meaning that's all you have, that's not enough, but you certainly can't do good work without having it. So I think the longer you've worked with someone that's going through this, the better chance you have of having these conversations that we're talking about. It's very tough if you get hit with this in a first or second session and you have not really built up that therapeutic alliance or rapport with the client. Laura, what, what do you think about what we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Quentin put it, put it so well. You know, there's 
often this misconception, you know, he mentioned informed consent. So many times I'll hear clinicians say, yes, if you have thoughts of hurting yourself or others, we don't, we don't need to report just that someone had thoughts of hurting themselves. <laughs> it's not that simple. It's so much more nuanced. And it comes back to that idea of it's not dichotomous. And, and so I am very clear of, you know, that is reserved for times where I feel that you are at imminent risk. You're, you're unwilling to, to work with me on that or to find other avenues to help keep you safe. Then that might happen, but I'll do my best to have a conversation about that in advance. And absolutely what Quentin said about being honest of, you know, you're, you're saying you're not gonna, you're not going to hurt yourself, but I'm also, you've, you've told me about these other things that make me wonder if maybe down the line you might feel differently. Can, can we talk about that? Um, and just being honest about where you're seeing discrepancies or things that make you feel uncomfortable or nervous, being honest about that is a surefire way of keeping your client engaged in the conversation to say, you know, they're being honest with me and, and in, inviting their input rather than putting our own thoughts um, onto them. So I think it's, it's a big, important piece in working with suicidal individuals. I just want to I just want to add on to what what Laura has added as well here that say frankly I am very strongly of the belief that we should do everything we can to keep our clients out of the hospital and really the only time that calling the somebody to have them go into the hospital is absolutely recommended is if your client if the client sitting with you is either unwilling or unable to make efforts to keep themselves safe I would say if the evidence that you have as a therapist supports that decision. If they're if they're telling you that, oh yeah, I'll stay safe, but you don't see any of the evidence that they're gonna actually make themselves safe or actually talk to somebody, that that's not evidence that supports the decision. But there are so many steps before we go to hospitalization. I mean, there are, let's call, let's, let's check in through a phone message tomorrow in three days. Let's have a second or third session in one week. Any of those higher levels of treatment before we get to hospitalization are also going to help you. The clients know that you are going to help work with them and that you're, you're frankly not scared of their painful affect. Yeah, so glad you said that. You're not just going to discard them off to a hospital system. There's many things in between that can show care and safety before you get to that option. Now, when we were talking about myths earlier, one you all didn't mention that I hear a lot is this idea of, well, you need a no suicide contract. So let's talk about the difference between no suicide contracts and what you were just kind of referring to, Quentin, is as far as safety planning and safety, safety plans. Yeah, so um, no suicide contracts are controversial in that there's training programs that still use them, even though, you know, the research is saying, um, the research is not showing that they're effective. And oftentimes it can hurt rapport because it starts to put... The idea, it gives the impression that the therapist is more concerned about liability and the legal aspects rather than the human experience of someone feeling this this awful feeling of, of feeling suicidal. And so instead of doing a no suicide contract, which for any of the listeners that don't know what that is, it's essentially a statement that says that a client will not hurt themselves while they're in treatment. And I'll say another reason why in my opinion, no suicide contracts aren't effective is that it can actually lead to more hopelessness. If you're thinking about someone who's suicidal, oftentimes, you know, for most of us, we all have 
things that we go to whenever we're in a really bad place mentally. Maybe we go for a walk. Maybe we talk to a loved one. Maybe we, you know, allow ourselves to zone out with TV. There's something that we can do to distract ourselves if we're in a, in a bad, in a bad place. And maybe we go down that that list of things that we can do. If one doesn't work, we have other things in our back pocket that we can pull on. And for someone who's feeling suicidal, they've often tried all those things that they can think about and they didn't work. And so suicide can be a, a last resort option for, for making that pain go away that they're feeling. And so if someone comes into my office and they're feeling suicidal and I give them this no suicide contract that says you can't hurt yourself while you're in treatment, it then takes away that one last option that they had of making their pain go away. And, and the idea that sometimes that is a thought that can help them cope and help them feel more at ease and feel that they can live for one more day. Um, it's, it's counterintuitive, but, but we don't want to take away that last option before we've given them other things that can go on that list, or we've helped them build and strengthen that list of things that they can go to when they're feeling suicidal. So yes, instead, you know, research has shown that safety planning is effective and safety planning is saying that when you feel suicidal, the expectation is these thoughts will happen. These thoughts will occur at some point again or continue. What are some things that we can do? And not, not just one thing, but let's list several. What are some things that we can do? Sometimes you'll see safety planning also listing what are some things I want to avoid, some things that sometimes I do to cope, but they actually make things worse for me or make me feel worse. So I want to avoid doing those things. Oftentimes a safety plan also includes who are support people that I can call on and having their contact information there. And then also emergency services or crisis services that I can call that are available 24-7. So it's essentially giving people different things that they can put on that list to do in the moment in the hope that they won't have to use suicide as that only option. Yeah, I'm sure that Laura and I each could talk about safety planning versus no suicide contracting for hours. It really is such such a thing that is debated and discussed ad nauseum within the field. Only The only thing I'm going to add here is a no suicide contract has no, no benefit to treatment. However, a safety plan, that's an integral and important aspect of treatment. And that's something that you can be coming back to every session. And that's part of why it, safety planning helps and works. And, and no suicide contracts, as Laura said so eloquently, it's really just to reduce liability. And you all said something also very important in that safety planning, right? That is where you learn about people outside of the room that are important, what I call in the, in the indirect system that are potentially family members or people that are important to reach out to. And that is where a systemic therapist is couple and family therapist, we then can expand the system like we're talking about His part of that safety planning is about, it's, it's about resources and about reaching out to more than just the therapist. It's about people external. So sounds like what we're talking about that in the safety planning is an excellent opportunity to reach out to those family members in the indirect system, don't you think? Yeah, and I'll add, I've even started encouraging clinicians to do a family safety plan in that, you know, there are things that the individual can do, but if we're having a conversation of what are some great ways for family members to react in a moment, if, you know, if your loved one, those suicidal thoughts come back and they come to you, what are some things that you can do? And so I've used a family safety plan where we list out, you know, what are some ways that 
you know, efforts that you do to try to help but aren't that effective or actually aren't as helpful as you thought they were, let's write those down because those are things, you know, we want to try to avoid. But what are some things you can do instead in making that a conversation between the individual who's had suicidal thoughts and their family member of what what's most helpful for you when you come to your parent or what's most helpful whenever you tell your spouse you're feeling this way and writing those things down so that you know, family members can remember. You know, we often say that a safety plan, having a hard copy, whether it's a paper copy or a picture on your phone, is so important because whenever someone is feeling suicidal or any time that we're feeling really flooded emotionally, it's hard to remember the things that we've done or the ideas that we had for coping. The same goes for families. Whenever you hear that your loved one is suicidal, that panic can come up and you forget, what am I supposed to do in this moment? And so having a hard, tangible copy, again, whether that's a paper copy or a photo on a phone or something like that, where we can say, what what did they tell me was most helpful to do here? Um, it can be a great reminder for families. Yeah, I love that idea. And again, it's just a natural way to outreach to these important people in the system. What were you going to say, Quentin? Uh, I was going to express how, how much I love hearing Laura talk about family safety plans. Part of why I, I, I enjoy her as a colleague so much. Uh, the thing I'm going to say is, no, no, I recognize this stance is a little bit harsh. I think that if we are, if we are family therapists and we are systemic therapists, we should not wait until we're safety planning to be bringing in the larger system. I mean, I'm thinking of a, of a client that called me just a couple weeks ago looking for some treatment for suicidal thoughts. I asked, even in that first intake phone call, asked about some family relationships, what's going on. Because I asked about family relationships, he said, oh, well, yeah, because I'm, I'm so suicidal and depressed, my marriage is really struggling. And so I thought, well, hey, how about you bring your wife in? So they both come in. Oh, you know what? Her suicidal thoughts are even higher and, and more difficult to struggle to deal with than his. So now, rather than just having this one person with mild suicidal thoughts, we have a couple that are both struggling with suicidal thoughts differently and helping them to learn how to support one another rather than waiting until things got really bad and then reaching out to his wife we've started from the very beginning uh yes you're preaching to the choir i can't uh, agree more this idea of it's it's much easier to start with the larger system and then if you need to contract then contracting and then expanding and i think a lot of times when we look in our field sometimes people in our settings if you work in an agency or a clinic you don't might necessarily not do your own intake. So the person doing the intake isn't systemic. They're not MFT. They don't know that that relationship, uh, that therapy can be relational. Perhaps the potential client has never been in therapy, much less couple or family therapy. So I think this is, I always tell people that I'm training that having contact with your client, just a simple five or 10 minute intake call, not only does it start building the alliance, but you can assess for some of these things and you can make it relational from the get-go. So yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. This idea of the family plan, it's so such a great idea. It leads to my next question of what we need to do as a field because you all are really pioneering this way. And again, if you're not trained systemically, Family plan seems natural to MFTs, but not maybe to many frontline clinicians that don't have systemic training. So what do we need to do as a field to better educate not just MFTs, but but therapists in general about how to deal with families? Where do you think we need to go? Sorry, I'm just going to say first off here, I, I think you're right that family safety planning seems natural to MFTs, but I don't think we as a field practice it. Meaning my experience tells me 
that when things get difficult and we start building a safety plan, we suddenly forget our systemic training and we become individually focused and that and we all get limited to that. Yeah, I agree. And and maybe that's even a place that's one of the first places to start for where the field needs to go. Across all mental health disciplines, there is not enough training in doing suicide risk assessments and very little training in doing safety planning, whether that's individual or family. And so making sure especially in our MFT programs that we are training individuals on how to ask about suicide, giving them opportunities to feel comfortable asking those questions, to practice asking those questions, and then helping them also see, you know, how do we do safety plans? So even just giving a better basis of training is so important for our field. So I'm going to go, I'm going to move this forward. So there's actually, there's actually some research and, and some papers that have been put out by the American Association of Suicidology that, that shows that marriage and family therapy as a field is the least prepared to deal with clients struggling with suicide-related thoughts and behaviors. I think that there's a lot of work that we can do to prepare for this. I can recall one professor I had when I was a student, and I said I wanted to work with suicidal clients, I wanted to do research with suicide. The professor's response was, well, then you should be a clinical psychologist, not a family therapist. He then further said, you're just not going to have clients that deal with suicide because you're going to have clients that are just, that function very highly and can afford to pay your fees. Um, I think this gets to the, the concept that Doherty and Simmons found that we're, we're often seen to only work with the worried well. So people that are just a little bit sad or unhappy. However, I think that this is not the case. There are many things that we can be doing. Many of our clinics screen out suicide-related thoughts and behaviors entirely in our training systems. Um, I think that's one of, the, one of the steps that we can move forward into helping our students and learn to deal with suicide-related thoughts and behaviors better is to help them work with them. I'm not saying that we need to be crisis centers, but how are we going to help somebody deal with suicide-related thoughts and behaviors if while we are teaching them, they never have a client talk about suicide. Yeah, I, I think that points so much to this misconception of what a suicidal person is. I think people have something in their mind of if someone is feeling suicidal, then they must have, they must look a certain way. And the reality is the majority of individuals have felt suicidal in their in their lifetime. There's, suicide is not something that only affects one group. It is across the board, whether we're looking at age, whether we're looking at race and ethnicity, religious background, it's something that affects all. And we need to make our clinicians prepare them to ask those questions and to not try to reserve it for someone who's who's necessarily the worst off. So we, we certainly need to train them for that. Yeah. Yeah. These are some great ideas, whether AMFT has been doing a lot with simulated clients. So you don't want to have a scenario like this, whether you're in a training program or not, and, and not be prepared. So how do we deal with that? So whether it's a role play and a supervision or a course in a MFT training program, or whether it's through the use of a simulated client to be able to have these experiences and to, as you said, Laura, elucidate or destigmatize what a suicidal person looks like. And this idea that is MFTs, which you were saying, Quentin, like I believe in the health premise. I, I, I look for a strength, health and strength, but in doing that, I don't ignore psychopathology yeah. uh, if it's st staring me in the face. So to be able to hold both, right? I think that's what 
MFTs have to do, and especially the two of you in your careers that both be look for these protective factors and look for this resilience, but but also being able to understand the severity and to not ignore these things and knowing how to respond. I mean, this has been great so far. We can have a whole nother hour on this next topic, but I, I do want to mention it at least briefly in the sense that we talk about, okay, if the client or the family comes in with someone you know, actively having these thoughts or contemplating suicide. Now, the other point of entry for many MFTs is when a bereaved family member comes in, their loved one has unfortunately taken their life. And there is a roller coaster of emotions with these type of clients from confusion to grief to anger. What do we know from the research on bereavement, which I know is is one of your interests, Quentin, and how can family therapists best support lost survivors? Gosh, uh, yeah, this, this we could spend hours talking about this. The, the research that does exist, there isn't a ton of it on, on how to support lost survivors, and especially clinically. John Jordan, one of the major people that studies uh, treatment with suicide lost survivors, he strongly suggests attachment-based work. And one, one of the things that, that people are really struggling with when they've lost someone to suicide, someone dear to them, is trying to understand the suicide. Uh, we call that essentially making meaning of it. Not only making meaning of what what led this person to be suicidal. Often it was it was a surprise to people and they didn't realize it. Sometimes it was not, and it's still hard then. But making sense of it. But then also, how do you make meaning in a life without your son? How do you make meaning in a life without your your partner or, or whomever it is that died. How do, what, does, what meaning does your life have and how do you move forward with that? Within families, I think it's very important to be working, again, with the whole system because there are differences that the way people grieve within the same family. There are often a lot of frustration between family members that you didn't love, you didn't love him because you're not, doing, you're not grieving like I'm grieving. There are loyalties that are not explicit between family members, thoughts and feelings of responsibility related to the death that often are not discussed. I mean, I know my, from my own personal experience, I was eight when my brother died and I was, I was sure that it was my fault. And cognitively, I, know, I knew that it maybe wasn't, uh, except not at eight years old, but I still probably would have really been helped if someone had ever told me it wasn't my fault. But that's not something that the therapist we, my family had seen did. It's not something my parents ever did. It's really helpful to have a professional help you understand what, that you're not at fault for the loss. Because that is one of the, the core struggles that many loss survivors deal with, is they feel responsible for the death. And they often start to, I mean, question their whole lives. I'm not a good parent. I'm not a good partner. I'm not a good enough XYZ, often that, that impacts, if, a, if it's a parent that's lost a child, that often impacts and, and hinders their ability to effectively parent the children that are still alive. And then there's even more anger that can be present within the children that are still alive. One, there's often anger on how could you leave me? How could you abandon me? Why would you do this to me? But then sometimes there becomes anger towards the, the parents or family members for and now you're neglecting me. You're not giving me what I need. Laura, what do you think about that? He's, he said so much good stuff there. Uh, obviously, it's a different situation when you're working with a family uh, after this tragedy. But certainly 
MFTs are needed in both. Anything else you want to add to what uh, your colleague was saying? Sure, yeah. I think um, just just one piece that I'll add, I, I agreed with everything that he said there. And it one thing that's so complicated around suicide loss is also the mixture of emotions that can come out of it. So someone might feel, right, intense grief, blame, or guilt, but also maybe they feel anger or betrayal or embarrassment or fear of what other people might think. There's so many other things that can go in there. And then having those feelings in and of themselves can make someone feel more blame or more guilt that they're even having that reaction. And so being able as a clinician to normalize that all of those are common experiences to feel after a suicide loss and allowing someone the space to process those and and make meaning out of them um, and make meaning out of that experience is so important. Last question I've learned so much this hour, and we've talked about from a training perspective, what needs to be done. And as I said, you are clinical trainers, researchers, practitioners. When we, let's think about 10 years from now and we revisit this conversation, you're full professors and you've pioneered this way of this systemic lens on suicide. What do you hope in the next 10 years as a field from a research perspective and an advocacy's perspective is done? Where do we need to go in that direction? So I'll say what what I would love to see. In the last 20 years, we have seen adolescent suicide treatment be revolutionized, meaning just about every treatment for suicidal adolescents now includes a component of family therapy, uh, whether it's DBT, whether I mean just standard DBT that actually could easily involve families, um, but often DBT with adolescents now includes a, an, a heightened family component. This is something that we talk about and we mention in this uh, treatment review paper that, that Laura and I have been working on that should be out fairly soon on clinical treatment with, with suicide in families. Uh, we see almost every treatment for suicidal adolescents has now, now includes a family component just because the research has recognized that, it, that family matters for adolescents and suicide. In the next 10 years, I would love to see this starting to happen with adults. Uh, I'm not suggesting that it looks the same as family therapy does for adolescents, because certainly there's hierarchical and developmental differences, but there certainly are reasons why partners don't tell their, their, their partner about their suicidal thoughts. And just about every client I've worked with could really benefit if their parents responded a little bit better, even if they're adults, when they discuss their suicidal thoughts. Number two thing that I would love to see is I would love to see our field specifically require a crisis class in our curriculum. I know that our our accreditation is already jam-packed full of things, but specifically addressing crisis, and I'm not, I'm not just saying suicide, I'm talking domestic violence, any sort of crisis. I think that needs to explicitly be required training in our field. Yeah, I think those are great ideas. I would just would feel such happiness if those things became the norm in our field. I think a couple of things that I'll add on top of that, um, two things that come to mind for me, you know, one of the frustrations that Quentin and I have have shared together, and I think one of the things that really bonded us together in our research is feeling this frustration of you have the field of suicidology that are the experts on suicide, and they're heavily researching prevention and intervention. And at the other side, you have family scientists, family therapists that 
are really experts in the family component and whether that's assessment um, or intervention, but we don't really have the two fields talking together. And so being able to, you know, if I go to um, suicide focused events and I'm talking about the family aspect, sometimes people don't quite understand that or grasp it. Or if I'm at a family focused event, maybe they're surprised that I'm talking about suicidality, that it feels like that belongs in another camp professionally. And really there's so much overlap between the two and there's so many ways in which the fields could benefit from one another. And so I really wish that there was more crossover in those two things, that suicidologists understood the importance of family and that family therapists understood the importance of 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 seeing suicide as a common experience and something that they they should understand and be prepared for and then one other aspect that I I wish clinicians knew more and more, and I hope that this will change over the next decade, is really understanding the continuum of care around suicide and suicidal ideation and behavior, that it's just like ideation isn't, or, you know, suicide intent is not dichotomous. Treatment options are not dichotomous. It's not just hospitalization, for example, that we can treat suicide ideation in an outpatient setting. And there's a certain point where it becomes severe enough that hospitalization might be warranted, but that's a very rare experience. That's something that is not needed all the time. And so, so many times we're kind of pushing people out of our practice to say that that's something that could be treated in, ho- in the hospital, when really if, if our clinicians were better trained um, and had more experience, they, they could see that individual in an outpatient setting. And that would just encourage more people to say, I can say that I'm suicidal and not have to be forced into a hospital. I can talk about this and someone not think that I'm crazy. And I, I just think that that's something that would be really great if our field could could grasp that. Wow, so well said. And I look for the two of you all to be those integrators and those trailblazers of bringing these kind of disparate fields together of suicidology and, and family studies or family therapy and integrate it in a unifying way like that. So, so well said. I've learned so much this hour, you know, where we are, what needs to be done and and you can take some skills away to right away, even if you're existing and practicing or if you're, you know, a supervisor or influential in the training of young couple and family therapists. But I can't thank you all enough for a really informative and educational hour. And I can tell you're very passionate about this. And I look look forward to following where your work um, will take us in the field. Thank you so much, Quentin and Laura. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Eli, back with you, wrapping up another successful installment of the AAMFT podcast. Thank you so much to Laura and Quentin. I learned a lot and certainly valuable information for all of those that work with people that have been touched by either suicide or suicide attempts in their clinical work. If you want more from Laura and Quentin, you like that. And you need some CEs, some continuing education credits. AMFT has you covered. Tenio, that's your one-stop shop for all things continuing education. You go to amft.org under the Enhanced Knowledge tab. There you'll see Tenio. And you want to search for Quentin or Laura. That's Quentin Hunt or Laura Fry or... Just put in suicide as a keyword and you will get working with suicidal adolescents where you'll hear for two hours Quentin and Laura speak about everything we talked about today and more, including essential information about working with suicidal adolescents and their families, using info conducted from interviews with clinicians that specialize 
in the treatment of suicide. And if you're an AMFT member, get this for the reasonable price of $30. That's $15 per CEU, a great value. And even if you're a non-member, um, it's only $40. So again, Tenio, you can find that. Other thing we referenced during the interview is the great JMFT article, Journal of Marital and Family Therapy, which is Systemic Therapy's flagship journal. And you also get free complimentary access to that when you're a member of AMFT. Um, and treatment for Suicidal Thoughts and Behavior, a review of family-based interventions, where Laura and Quentin cover everything that has come before and where we're headed as a field as far as family-based interventions uh, working with suicide. Please drop us a line. We love hearing from you. That's what informs our topics on the show, both really current trends in the field like we cover today and also the the names, the, the luminaries, the pioneers, so to speak. And you can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast. I am partial to Apple Podcasts. And please leave us a review, a star rating that helps us grow through the ranks of Mental Health Podcast. And certainly drop me a line or the AMFT. You can drop the AMFT a line at communications at amft.org. On Twitter, they're at the AMFT. I'm at elicaram.com. My Twitter handle is Dr. Eli Live. And you can drop me an email at eli at northstarcounselingcenter.com. Until next time, my friends. Stay safe, stay systemic.